Section 70 of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. Section 70. James G. Blaine. Part 2. These two speeches illustrate the scope of Blaine in debate. These speeches also clearly show why he is so dearly beloved or so bitterly hated. But that Mr. Blaine is an orator of the first order cannot be gainsaid. The preceding speeches represent the highest attainment of one ideal of an orator, and in a role in which Mr. Blaine is almost without parallel in his memorial address on Garfield, delivered in the hall of the House of Representatives, he presents the lofty style which is the beau ideal of oratory. He spoke something as follows. Mr. President, for the second time in this generation, the great departments of the government of the United States are assembled in the Hall of Representatives to do honor to the memory of a murdered president. Lincoln fell at the close of a mighty struggle in which the passions of men had been deeply stirred. The tragical termination of his great life added but another to the lengthened succession of horrors which had marked so many lintels with the blood of the firstborn. Garfield was slain in a day of peace, when brother had been reconciled to brother, and when anger and hate had been banished from the land. Whoever shall hereafter draw the portrait of murder, if he will show it as it has been exhibited where such example was last to have been looked for, let him not give it the grim visage of Moloch, the brow knitted by revenge, the face black with settled hate. Let him draw, rather, a decorous, smooth-faced, bloodless demon, not so much an example of human nature in its depravity and in its paroxysms of crime, as an infernal being, a fiend in the ordinary display and development of his character. His father dying before he was two years old, Garfield's early life was one of privation. But its poverty has been made indelicately and unjustly prominent. Thousands of readers have imagined him as the ragged, starving child, whose reality too often greets the eye in the squalid sections of our large cities. General Garfield's infancy and youth had none of this destitution, none of these pitiful features appealing to the tender heart and to the open hand of charity. He was a poor boy in the same sense in which Henry Clay was a poor boy, in which Andrew Jackson was a poor boy, in which Daniel Webster was a poor boy, in the sense in which a large majority of the eminent men of America in all generations have been poor boys. Before a great multitude in a public speech, Mr. Webster bore this testimony. It did not happen to me to be born in a log cabin, but my elder brothers and sisters were born in a log cabin, raised amid the snowdrifts of New Hampshire, at a period so early that when the smoke rose first from its rude chimney and curled over the frozen hills, there was no similar evidence of a white man's habitation between it and the settlements on the rivers of Canada. Its remains still exist. I make to it an annual visit. I carry my children to it to teach them the hardships endured by the generations which have gone before them. I love to dwell on the tender recollections, the kindred ties, 
the early affections and the touching narratives and incidents which mingle with all i know of this primitive family abode with the requisite change of scene the same words would aptly portray the early days of garfield the poverty of the frontier where all are engaged in a common struggle and where a common sympathy and hearty cooperation lighten the burdens of each is a very different poverty different in kind different in influence and effect from that conscious and humiliating indigence which is every day forced to contrast itself with neighboring wealth on which it feels a sense of grinding dependence the poverty of the frontier is indeed no poverty it is but the beginning of wealth and has the boundless possibilities of the future always opening before it no man ever grew up in the agricultural regions of the west where a house raising or even a corn husking is matter of common interest and helpfulness with any other feeling than that of broad-minded generous independence this honorable independence marked the youth of garfield as it marks the youth of millions of the best blood and brain now training for future citizenship and future government of the republic garfield was born heir to land to the title of freeholder which has been the patent and passport of self-respect from the anglo-saxon race ever since hengist and horsa landed on the shores of england his adventure on the canal an alternative between that and the deck of a lake erie schooner was a farmer boy's device for earning money just as the new england lad begins a possibly great career by sailing before the mast on a coasting vessel or on a merchantman bound to the farther india or to the china seas no manly man feels anything of shame in looking back to early struggles with adverse circumstances and no man feels a worthier pride than when he has conquered the obstacles to his progress but no one of noble mould desires to be looked upon as having occupied a menial position as having been repressed by a feeling of inferiority or as having suffered the evils of poverty until relief was found in the hands of charity general garfield's youth presented no hardships which family love and family energy did not overcome subjected him to no privations which he did not cheerfully accept and left no memories save those which were recalled with delight and transmitted with profit and with pride garfield's early opportunities for securing an education were extremely limited and yet were sufficient to develop in him an intense desire to learn he could read at three years of age and each winter he had the advantage of the district school he read all the books to be found within the circle of his acquaintance some of them he got by heart while yet in childhood he was a constant student of the bible and became familiar with its literature the dignity and earnestness of his speech in his maturer life gave evidence of this early training at eighteen years of age he was able to teach school and thenceforward his ambition was to obtain a college education to this end he bent all efforts working in the harvest field at the carpenter's bench and in the winter season teaching the common schools of the neighborhood while thus laboriously occupied he found time to prosecute his studies and was so successful that at twenty-two years of age he was able to enter the junior class at williams college 
then under the presidency of the venerable and honored Mark Hopkins, who, in the fullness of his powers, survives the eminent pupil to whom he was of inestimable service. The history of Garfield's life to this period presents no novel features. He had undoubtedly shown perseverance, self-reliance, self-sacrifice, and ambition, qualities which, be it said for the honor of our country, are everywhere to be found among the young men of America. But from his graduation at Williams onward to the hour of his tragical death, Garfield's career was eminent and exceptional. Slowly working through his educational period, receiving his diploma when twenty-four years of age, he seemed at one bound to spring into conspicuous and brilliant success. Within six years, he was successively president of a college, state senator of Ohio, major general of the Army of the United States, and representative-elect to the National Congress. A combination of honors so varied, so elevated, within a period so brief, and to a man so young, is without precedent or parallel in the history of the country. Garfield's army life was begun with no other military knowledge than such as he had hastily gained from books in the few months preceding his march to the field. Stepping from civil life to the head of a regiment, the first order he received when ready to cross the Ohio was to assume command of a brigade and to operate as an independent force in eastern Kentucky. His immediate duty was to check the advance of Humphrey Marshall, who was marching down the Big Sandy with the intention of occupying, in connection with other Confederate forces, the entire territory of Kentucky and of precipitating the state into secession. This was at the close of the year 1861. Seldom, if ever, has a young college professor been thrown into a more embarrassing and discouraging position. He knew just enough of military science, as he expressed it himself, to measure the extent of his ignorance, and with a handful of men he was marching in rough winter weather into a strange country, among a hostile population, to confront a largely superior force under the command of a distinguished graduate of West Point who had seen active and important service in two preceding wars. The result of the campaign is a matter of history. The skill, the endurance, the extraordinary energy shown by Garfield, the courage he imparted to his men, raw and untried as himself, the measures he adopted to increase his force, and to create in the enemy's mind exaggerated estimates of his numbers, bore perfect fruit in the routing of Marshall, the capture of his camp, the dispersion of his force, and the emancipation of an important territory from the control of the rebellion. Coming at the close of a long series of disasters to the Union arms, Garfield's victory had an unusual and extraneous importance, and in the popular judgment elevated the young commander to the rank of a military hero. With less than two thousand men in his entire command, with a mobilized force of only eleven hundred, without cannon, he had met an army of five thousand and defeated them, driving Marshall's forces successively from two strongholds of their own selection, fortified with abundant artillery. Major General Buell, commanding the Department of the Ohio, an experienced and able soldier of the regular army, 
published an order of thanks and congratulation on the brilliant result of the Big Sandy campaign, which would have turned the head of a less cool and sensible man than Garfield. Buell declared that his services had called into action the highest qualities of a soldier, and President Lincoln supplemented these words of praise by the more substantial reward of a brigadier general's commission to bear date from the day of his decisive victory over Marshall. The subsequent military career of Garfield fully sustained its brilliant beginning. With his new commission, he was assigned to the command of a brigade in the Army of the Ohio, and took part in the second and decisive day's fight on the bloody field of Shiloh. The remainder of the year 1862 was not especially eventful to Garfield, as it was not to the armies with which he was serving. His practical sense was called into exercise in completing the task assigned him by General Buell of reconstructing bridges and re-establishing lines of railway communication for the army. His occupation in this useful but not brilliant field was varied by service on courts-martial of importance, in which department of duty he won a valuable reputation, attracting the notice and securing the approval of the able and eminent judge advocate general of the army. This of itself was warrant to honorable fame, for among the great men who in those trying days gave themselves with entire devotion to the service of their country, one who brought to that service the ripest learning, the most fervid eloquence, the most varied attainments, who labored with modesty and shunned applause, who in the day of triumph sat reserved and silent and grateful, as Francis Deke, in the hour of Hungary's deliverance, was Joseph Holt of Kentucky, who, in his honorable retirement, enjoys the respect and veneration of all who love the Union of the States. Early in 1863, Garfield was assigned to the highly important and responsible post of Chief of Staff to General Rosecrans, then at the head of the Army of the Cumberland. Perhaps in a great military campaign, no subordinate officer requires sounder judgment and quicker knowledge of men than the chief of staff to the commanding general. An indiscreet man in such a position can sow more discord, breed more jealousy, and disseminate more strife than any other officer in the entire organization. When General Garfield assumed his new duties, he found various troubles already well developed and seriously affecting the value and efficiency of the army of the cumberland the energy the impartiality and the tact with which he sought to allay these dissensions and to discharge the duties of his new and trying position will always remain one of the most striking proofs of his great versatility his military duties closed on the memorable field of chickamauga a field which, however disastrous to the Union arms, gave to him the occasion of winning imperishable laurels. The very rare distinction was accorded him of a great promotion for bravery on a field that was lost. President Lincoln appointed him a major general in the Army of the United States for gallant and meritorious conduct in the Battle of Chickamauga. The Army of the Cumberland was reorganized under the command of General Thomas who promptly offered Garfield one of its divisions. He was extremely desirous to accept the position, but was embarrassed by the fact that he had a year before been elected to Congress, and the time when he must take his seat was drawing near. He preferred to remain in the military service, 
and had within his own breast the largest confidence of success in the wider field which his new rank opened to him balancing the arguments on the one side and the other anxious to determine what was for the best desirous above all things to do his patriotic duty he was decisively influenced by the advice of president lincoln and secretary stanton both of whom assured him that he could at that time be of a special value in the house of representatives he resigned his commission of major general on the fifth day of december eighteen sixty three and took his seat in the house of representatives on the seventh he had served two years and four months in the army and had just completed his thirty-second year the thirty-eighth congress is pre-eminently entitled in history to the designation of the war congress it was elected while the war was flagrant and every member was chosen upon the issues involved in the continuance of the struggle the thirty-seventh congress had indeed legislated to a large extent on war measures but it was chosen before anyone believed that secession of the states would be actually attempted the magnitude of the work which fell upon its successor was unprecedented both in respect to the vast sums of money raised for the support of the army and navy and of the new and extraordinary powers of legislation which it was forced to exercise only twenty-four states were represented and one hundred and eighty-two members were upon its roll among these were many distinguished party leaders on both sides veterans in the public service with established reputations for ability and with that skill which comes only from parliamentary experience into this assemblage of men garfield entered without special preparation and it might almost be said unexpectedly the question of taking command of a division of troops under general thomas or taking his seat in congress was kept open till the last moment so late indeed that the resignation of his military commission and his appearance in the house were almost contemporaneous he wore the uniform of a major general of the united states army on saturday and on monday in civilian dress he answered to roll call as a representative in congress from the state of ohio he was especially fortunate in the constituency which elected him descended almost entirely from new england stock the men of the ashtabula district were intensely radical on all questions relating to human rights well educated thrifty thoroughly intelligent in affairs acutely discerning of character not quick to bestow confidence and slow to withdraw it they were at once the most helpful and the most exacting of supporters their tenacious trust in men in whom they have once confided is illustrated by the unparalleled fact that elisha Whitlessley, joshua r giddings and james a garfield represented the district for fifty-four years there is no test of a man's ability in any department of public life more severe than service in the house of representatives there is no place where so little deference is paid to reputation previously acquired or to eminence won outside no place where so little consideration is shown for the feelings or the failures of beginners what a man gains in the house he gains by sheer force of his own character and if he loses and falls back he must expect no mercy and will receive no sympathy 
it is a field in which the survival of the strongest is the recognized rule and where no pretense can deceive and no glamour can mislead the real man is discovered his worth is impartially weighed his rank is irreversibly decreed with possibly a single exception garfield was the youngest member in the house when he entered and was but seven years from his college graduation but he had not been in his seat sixty days before his ability was recognized and his place conceded he stepped to the front with the confidence of one who belonged there the house was crowded with strong men of both parties nineteen of them have since been transferred to the senate and many of them have served with distinction in the gubernatorial chairs of their respective states and on foreign missions of great consequence but among them all none grew so rapidly none so firmly as garfield as is said by trevelyan of his parliamentary hero garfield succeeded because all the world in concert could not have kept him in the background and because when once in the front he played his part with a prompt intrepidity and a commanding ease that were but the outward symptoms of the immense reserves of energy on which it was in his power to draw indeed the apparently reserved force which garfield possessed was one of his great characteristics he never did so well but that it seemed he could easily have done better he never expended so much strength but that he appeared to be holding additional power at call this is one of the happiest and rarest distinctions of an effective debater and often counts for as much in persuading an assembly as the eloquent and elaborate argument the great measure of garfield's fame was filled by his service in the house of representatives his military life illustrated by honorable performance and rich in promise was as he himself felt prematurely terminated and necessarily incomplete speculation as to what he might have done in a field where the great prizes are so few cannot be profitable it is sufficient to say that as a soldier he did his duty bravely he did it intelligently he won an enviable fame and he retired from the service without blot or breath against him as a lawyer though admirably equipped for the profession he can scarcely be said to have entered on its practice the few efforts he made at the bar were distinguished by the same high order of talent which he exhibited on every field where he was put to the test and if a man may be accepted as a competent judge of his own capacities and adaptations the law was the profession to which garfield should have devoted himself but fate ordained otherwise and his reputation in history will rest largely upon his service in the house of representatives that service was exceptionally long he was nine times consecutively chosen to the house an honor enjoyed probably by not twenty other representatives of the more than five thousand who have been elected from the organization of the government to this hour as a parliamentary orator as a debater on an issue squarely joined where the position has been chosen and the ground laid out garfield must be assigned a very high rank more perhaps than any man with whom he was associated in public life he gave careful and systematic study to public questions and he came to every discussion in which he took part with elaborate and complete preparation he was a steady and indefatigable worker 
those who imagine that talent or genius can supply the place or achieve the results of labor will find no encouragement in Garfield's life. In preliminary work he was apt, rapid, and skillful. He possessed in a high degree the power of readily absorbing ideas and facts, and like Dr. Johnson had the art of getting from a book all that was of value in it by a reading apparently so quick and cursory that it seemed like a mere glance at the table of contents. He was a preeminently fair and candid man in debate, took no petty advantage, stooped to no unworthy methods, avoided personal illusions, rarely appealed to prejudice, did not seek to inflame passion. He had a quicker eye for the strong point of his adversary than for his weak point, and on his own side he so marshaled his weighty arguments as to make his hearers forget any possible lack in the complete strength of his position. He had a habit of stating his opponent's side with such amplitude of fairness and such liberality of concession that his followers often complained that he was giving his case away. But never in his prolonged participation in the proceedings of the House did he give his case away or fail in the judgment of competent and impartial listeners to gain the mastery these characteristics which marked garfield as a great debater did not however make him a great parliamentary leader a parliamentary leader as that term is understood wherever free representative government exists is necessarily and very strictly the organ of his party an ardent American defined the instinctive warmth of patriotism when he offered the toast, Our country always right, but right or wrong, our country. The parliamentary leader, who has a body of followers that will do and dare and die for the cause, is one who believes his party is always right, but right or wrong is for his party. No more important or exacting duty devolves upon him than the selection of the field and the time for contest. He must know not merely how to strike, but where to strike, and when to strike. He often skillfully avoids the strength of his opponent's position, and scatters confusion in his ranks by attacking an exposed point, when really the righteousness of the cause and the strength of logical entrenchment are against him. He conquers often both against the right and the heavy battalions, as when young Charles Fox, in the days of his Toryism, carried the House of Commons against justice, against its immemorial rights, against his own convictions, if indeed at that period Fox had convictions, and in the interest of a corrupt administration, in obedience to a tyrannical sovereign, drove Wilkes from the seat to which the electors of Middlesex had chosen him, and installed Luttrell, in defiance not merely of law, but of public decency. For an achievement of that kind, Garfield was disqualified, disqualified by the texture of his mind, by the honesty of his heart, by his conscience, and by every instinct and aspiration of his nature. The three most distinguished parliamentary leaders hitherto developed in this country are Mr. Clay, Mr. Douglas, and Mr. Thaddeus Stevens. They were all men of consummate ability, of great earnestness, of intense personality, differing widely each from the other, and yet with a signal trait in common, the power to command. In the give and take of daily discussion, in the art of controlling and consolidating reluctant and refractory followers, 
in the skill to overcome all forms of opposition and to meet with competency and courage the varying phases of unlooked-for assault or unsuspected defection it would be difficult to rank with these a fourth name in all our congressional history but of these mr clay was the greatest it would perhaps be impossible to find in the parliamentary annals of the world a parallel to mr clay in eighteen forty one when at sixty-four years of age he took the control of the whig party from the president who had received their suffrages against the power of webster in the cabinet against the eloquence of choate in the senate against the herculean efforts of caleb cushing and henry a wise in the house in unshared leadership in the pride and plentitude of power he hurled against john tyler with deepest scorn the mass of that conquering column which had swept over the land in eighteen forty and drove his administration to seek shelter behind the lines of its political foes mr douglas achieved a victory scarcely less wonderful when in eighteen fifty four against the secret desires of a strong administration against the wise counsel of the older chiefs against the conservative instincts and even the moral sense of the country he forced a reluctant congress into a repeal of the missouri compromise mr stevens in his contest from eighteen sixty five to eighteen sixty eight actually advanced his parliamentary leadership until congress tied the hands of the president and governed the country by its own will leaving only perfunctory duties to be discharged by the executive with two hundred millions of patronage in his hands at the opening of the contest aided by the active force of seward in the cabinet and the moral power of chase on the bench andrew johnson could not command the support of one-third in either house against the parliamentary uprisings of which thaddeus stevens was the animating spirit and the unquestioned leader from these three great men garfield differed radically differed in the quality of his mind in temperament in the form and phase of ambition he could not do what they did but he could do what they could not and in the breadth of his congressional work he left that which will longer exert a potential influence among men and which measured by the severe test of posthumous criticism will secure a more enduring and more enviable fame those unfamiliar with garfield's industry and ignorant of the details of his work may in some degree measure them by the annals of congress no one of the generation of public men to which he belonged has contributed so much that will prove valuable for future reference his speeches are numerous many of them brilliant all of them well studied carefully phrased and exhaustive of the subject under consideration collected from the scattered pages of ninety royal octavo volumes of congressional record they would present an invaluable compendium of the political events of the most important era through which the national government has ever passed when the history of this period shall be impartially written when war legislation measures of reconstruction protection of human rights amendments to the constitution maintenance of public credit steps toward specie resumption true theories of revenue may be reviewed unsurrounded by prejudice and disconnected from partisanism the speeches of garfield will be estimated at their true value and will be found to comprise a vast magazine of fact and argument of clear analysis 
and sound conclusion. Indeed, if no other authority were accessible, his speeches in the House of Representatives from December of 1863 to June of 1880 would give a well-connected history and complete defense of the important legislation of the seventeen eventful years that constitute his parliamentary life. Far beyond that, his speeches would be found to forecast many great measures yet to be completed, measures which he knew were beyond the public opinion of the hour, but which he confidently believed would secure popular approval within the period of his own lifetime and by the aid of his own efforts. Differing as Garfield does from the brilliant parliamentary leaders, it is not easy to find his counterpart anywhere in the record of American public life. He perhaps more nearly resembles Mr. Seward in his supreme faith in the all-conquering power of a principle. He had the love of learning and the patient industry of investigation to which John Quincy Adams owes his prominence and his presidency. He had some of those ponderous elements of mind which distinguish Mr. Webster, and which indeed in all our public life have left the great Massachusetts senator without an intellectual peer. In English parliamentary history, as in our own, the leaders in the House of Commons present points of essential difference from Garfield. But some of his methods recall the best features in the strong independent course of Sir Robert Peel, to whom he had striking resemblances in the type of his mind and in the habit of his speech. He had all of Burke's love for the sublime and the beautiful, with possibly something of his superabundance, in his faith and in his magnanimity, in his power of statement, in his subtle analysis, in his faultless logic, in his love of literature, in his wealth and world of illustration. One is reminded of that great English statesman of today, who, confronted with obstacles that would daunt any but the dauntless, reviled by those whom he would relieve as bitterly as by those whose supposed rights he is forced to invade still labors with serene courage for the amelioration of ireland and for the honor of the english name garfield's nomination to the presidency while not predicted or anticipated was not a surprise to the country his prominence in congress his solid qualities his wide reputation, strengthened by his own then recent election as senator from Ohio, kept him in the public eye as a man occupying the very highest rank among those entitled to be called statesmen. It was not mere chance that brought him this high honor. We must, says Mr. Emerson, reckon success a constitutional trait. If Eric is in robust health and has slept well and is at the top of his condition, and thirty years old at his departure from Greenland, he will still steer west, and his ships will reach Newfoundland. But take Eric out, and put in a stronger and bolder man, and the ships will sail six hundred, one thousand, fifteen hundred miles farther, and reach Labrador and New England. There is no chance in results. As a candidate, Garfield steadily grew in popular favor. He was met with a storm of detraction at the very hour of his nomination, and it continued with increasing volume and momentum until the close of his victorious campaign. No might nor greatness in mortality can censure escape back-wounding calumny. The whitest virtue strikes. What king so strong can tie the gall up in the slanderous tongue? 
surely if happiness can ever come from the honors or triumphs of this world on that quiet july morning james a garfield may well have been a happy man no foreboding of evil haunted him no slightest premonition of danger clouded his sky his terrible fate was upon him in an instant one moment he stood erect strong confident in the years stretching peacefully out before him the next he lay wounded bleeding helpless doomed to weary weeks of torture to silence and the grave great in life he was surpassingly great in death for no cause in the very frenzy of wantonness and wickedness by the red hand of murder he was thrust from the full tide of this world's interests from its hopes its aspirations its victories into the visible presence of death and he did not quail not alone for one short moment in which stunned and dazed he could give up life hardly aware of its relinquishment but through days of deadly languor through weeks of agony that was not less agony because silently born with clear sight and calm courage he looked into his open grave what blight and ruin met his anguished eyes whose lips may tell what brilliant broken plans what baffled high ambitions what sundering of strong warm manhood's friendships what bitter rending of sweet household ties behind him a proud expectant nation a great host of sustaining friends a cherished and happy mother wearing the full rich honors of her early toil and tears the wife of his youth whose whole life lay in his the little boys not yet emerged from childhood's day of frolic the fair young daughter the sturdy sons just springing into closest companionship claiming every day and every day rewarding a father's love and care and in his heart the eager rejoicing power to meet all demand before him desolation and great darkness and his soul was not shaken his countrymen were thrilled with instant profound and universal sympathy masterful in his mortal weakness he became the center of a nation's love enshrined in the prayers of a world but all the love and all the sympathy could not share with him his suffering he trod the wine-press alone with unfaltering front he faced death with unfailing tenderness he took leave of life above the demonic hiss of the assassin's bullet he heard the voice of god with simple resignation he bowed to the divine decree as the end drew near his early cravings for the sea returned the stately mansion of power had been to him the wearisome hospital of pain and he begged to be taken from its prison walls from its oppressive stifling air from its homelessness and its hopelessness gently silently the love of a great people bore the pale sufferer to the longed-for healing of the sea to live or to die as god should will within sight of its heaving billows within sound of its manifold voices with wan fevered face tenderly lifted to the cooling breeze he looked out wistfully upon the ocean's changing wonders on its fair sails whitening in the morning light on its restless waves rolling shoreward to break and die beneath the noonday sun on the red clouds of evening arching low to the horizon on the serene and shining pathway of the stars let us think that his dying eyes read a mystic meaning which only the rapt and parting soul may know 
let us believe that in the silence of the receding world he heard the great waves breaking on a farther shore and felt already upon his wasted brow the breath of the eternal morning we regret that we cannot give our readers the full speech here also but it is sufficient to say that it was a masterly production we give these three extracts from speeches to show and enable the thinker to read and study the characteristics which make mr blaine the great and renowned man that he really is today an honor he has earned for himself we do not desire to be regarded as a personal admirer of mr blaine we are not but his ability we are in duty bound to delineate truthfully our readers will observe the description mr blaine gives in his address on garfield of the qualifications necessary in a parliamentary leader we will say nothing as to our opinion of some enterprises in which mr blaine has engaged and we will not ask him to explain what he has never satisfactorily explained in relation to some transactions nor will we try to explain in our short space his skillfulness in parliamentary practice as before said our readers have read his description of a parliamentary leader and we will further simply say that mr blaine is one of the most skillful parliamentary leaders in the country he is generally recognized as such by all parties his canvass for the presidency is well known to the people had he been elected he would undoubtedly have made a very satisfactory president probably one of whom we would long have been proud end of section seventy james g blaine